Okay. Questions? Most of you have done this before, so you can ask any any of the pastors in particular. You can ask the panel in general. Uh, it can be about our general topic in the world, not of the world, or anything else you want to ask about. Okay, dismissed. Oh, go ahead. So I really don't talk about our general purpose as Christians in this life, but when you're talking about your individual purpose. In your own life, whenever you've been uncertain of that, uh, how have you all gone about um, figuring that out, whether it's by prayer or praying to the scriptures? Okay. Good question. The, uh, so I'm going to repeat it so we have it here. Um, we can find many general directions in Scripture about the life of the Christian. We're here for the glory of God, for example. But what does that mean for me? What, how, does that, how do I find that place and identity for myself? Is that uh, a, one way of putting that? So, guys, I'll let you uh, take a shot at that. Um, so, uh, at 60, I discovered that I was going to be a pig farmer. So it's not something you can figure out at just at one point, and that's just the end of it. You just live live that way. Um, I think Jonathan Edwards said, "Love God, do as you please." Right, so you, it, the way that we do this can look like a lot of different things. It can look like a lot of different careers. The world needs uh, shoemakers and uh, engineers and physicists and dog catchers, and, and you can you can do it in a number of ways. Um, the it, whatever whatever you find to do, figure out how to do that uh, in a way that glorifies God. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Do do everything uh, in, in such a way as you are making Him known. And the way that you make Him known in your work is you are satisfied in it. You do it cheerfully. You do it completely. You're, you know, you're not just trying to get by. You are leaning into everything you do is an act of changing the world and, and, uh, and, and making God known. So that's side one. Side two of the question is, um, I think that we, I don't, I don't know who said this, somebody, somebody when you guys will know, um, that, that we, we have disenchanted the world. Um, we've, we've made it about, you know, wood and rocks and, you know, matter and, and, and stuff. And we lose sight of the fact that God is revealed in everything around us. Now, I'm not a pantheist, so it's not like that. But, but, but God is expressing his world through his creation. Um, and, and we ought to live in the world recognizing that this is his place. And that he, uh, he is, is doing things. He's, he's saying things about himself in the creation of roly-poly bugs and aardvarks and um, and leaves and, and all the rest. And, he's, and so we live in this enchanted place and, and there's a sense in which we are um, enchanted beings. Uh, so it's, it's very much about washing the dishes, but washing the dishes is about way more than washing the dishes. We need to understand that what we're doing matters into eternity, that all of these things uh, are, are, are much bigger than the things that they are in themselves. I'll mention three things. Desire, what do you want to do? And is that a legitimate desire? So what the Bible says. Am I wanting something that God says is okay to want? Um, desire, opportunity. Has God opened up an opportunity for me to do this thing I desire? 
And then third, confirmation. That's why God puts you in families and churches and around people. Uh, you have bosses. You have other people who can look at you and say, no, uh, you may want to do that if you are able to do that. Uh, so they will be able to help. Ev- self-evaluation is a place to start. What do I, what do I think I'm good at? What do I want to do? Uh, what interests me? That's a legitimate place to start. But then you want both. Uh, let's say other people say, yeah, I think you'd be good at that too. Uh, but then the opportunity never presents itself in God's providence. So those would be three areas that I think you could think about of how that decision process uh, might work. Um, and then uh, I, I guess I might add a footnote and say flexibility because that will change over time. You, you start out moving in this direction because that's what you desire and perhaps opportunity and confirmation has been there. But then, of course, you now are in a new place to see new things and new opportunities and discover new things about yourself, develop skills. And so that's a changing thing that over the course of your lifetime. That, uh, may, it's the way God moves us. He shows us we're at point A and he shows us point B and we start moving toward that. And perhaps on the way or after we get there, he now shows us point C and D. And so that's, uh, those are the uh, kind of, that'd be a framework. I just want to say something that's tangentially related to your question. Um, so it's not so much about how you decide what to do, it's about how you seek to serve Christ in what you do. You see the relationship. And I'm afraid that sometimes what we've done is we've forgotten one of the great lessons of the Reformation. One of the great lessons of the Reformation was the dignity in God's sight of every human, lawful human calling. If it's it's not a job that involves sinning, it's a job where the job itself honours God. And so, what that means is, when you go to work, I don't want to do this, you work at a coffee shop, or you turn on computers, or you sew crops, or whatever you do. When you're thinking about the serving Christ bit, you shouldn't think about, okay, here's me serving coffee, now what do I do What's the kind of Christian source that I dollop on top of this kind of basically neutral food? Rather, the making the coffee is the servant Christ. Now, of course, maybe you get to evangelize your fellow baristas. Maybe you get to um, uh, befriend the lonely kid who joins in your coffee shop and, and you invite the church with you and you share the gospel with them. Right. Great. I'm not against the golfing extra Christian source on your barista food, right? <laughs> but we have to recover the idea that all of the things that we could be called to do are in themselves ways of serving Christ. And it, obviously this is what Pastor is talking about, about the um, fact that God made everything to reflect his glory and has given us dominion over everything. So if your job is to be an accountant, you be the, the best accountant you can be. And that is serving Christ. I have one, one story. Um, I've uh, 
I met a church, a friend of mine, a good friend, Peter um, Deaconson. He, he is a manager of a company that sells steel products. And um, he's going to, I'm going to get the conversation right. But he, so he has to do a lot of recruiting. And he quite often has people who come who are looking for something else from the job. Like they're, they're looking for a job that fulfills them, where they, where they feel bound. And it's like, we sell steel products. <laughs> <laughs> but he sees that rightly as, like, I'm serving Christ by doing the best job I can of shipping five truckloads of steel bars to a building site in some Florida. So, yeah, I don't want to too much more. If you, can, if you can reframe how you think about whatever it is the Lord's going to do, so that in that thing, you're serving Christ. Do the thing as an act of worship. Yes. And it's fulfilling when you have to put shoes on the kids and food on the table and tithe and uh, do all kinds of other things. Other questions? Yes, sir. So, Pastor Neil mentioned in the first talk the difference between plundering the Egyptians and kind of digging through their dumpster. I was curious in y'all's own lives and with the families, how do you discern the difference between those two things? Are there good, you know, tests or rules that you use try to wisely take in media from the world? I, uh, while you guys are thinking of how you're going to answer that, um, I'll, I'll remind you that pop in my mind something that Pastor Wilson once said. Uh, some people have all the discernment of a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and so, um, we don't want to do that. Uh, so, that's a good question. Guys, anything you want to comment on that? But while they're thinking still, um, I'll just say, you know, one of the things, of course, again, is knowing the Word of God and knowing that the broad questions is the framework in which we approach everything. God often doesn't tell us where to stand in the room, but He tells us which room to stand in. And so, there's walls here, and He basically says, you can go wherever you want to in here, but you may not go out there. And so, learning the parameters through God's Word of what is moral and what is immoral, what's good and what's evil, uh, what's dangerous, uh, learning where the ditches are on either side of the road. Uh, it's, not, it's not okay to err to the right. It's not okay to err. Uh, you can fall in the ditch on the right or the left. He's called us to not be in the ditch. I need to know where the ditches are. So that's where I would start with that. And then that would always be the framework for them from watching a movie or reading a book or having a conversation or have a job or relationship. Uh, those are things that would help me know uh, uh, danger signs. That's really a great question. <laughs> uh, I'd like to speak about similarities and differences. Uh, Bob Dylan once saying you've got to serve somebody. And you can serve Pharaoh or you can serve Pharaoh's God. Uh, doesn't mean the God that Pharaoh thinks he's serving is the one true God. So, uh, dumpster diving in Egypt um, would be to follow 
fair or foolishness. How do you tell the difference? Because sometimes it looks the same. And I'm going to try to unpack this just off the top of my peanut head. Um, <laughs> uh, plundering the Egyptians uh, looks a lot like dumpster diving to some people. But the plundering of the Egyptians that happened during the Exodus and after the Exodus was also a form of submission to God. So you can look at something and go, gosh, that looks very similar. So it's related to the question that was asked earlier, and I would have gone to Colossians chapter 3, I think it's verse 23. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. I will modify it now for the Exodus stuff. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the to, to Yahweh, the one true God, instead of on the Pharaoh, is what I would do. So, but it looks similar. Now I'm going to be, I'm going to give you an example that you all know. Um, <coughs> Pastor Hedden just mentioned that you are sexual beings. Um, some of you that are males and will be joined together, perhaps someday, with a female, and you will be intimate. Now, directly to your question, Mr. Newfell, what's the difference between plundering the Egyptians and dumpster diving in Pharaoh's backyard? Someone who's married and is intimate with his wife, if you were disgusting and took a photograph of that, it would look exactly like the immoral, sexual profligate guy that's just doing it because he does it. What's the difference between marital intimacy and adultery? They can look alike, but it's not alike. So I'm going to give you one, and you can say, gosh, that's a little bit crash. And, you know, you're all thinking about it already, because I made you think about it. Uh, so we are all submissive to some authority. Uh, why do I do what I do? Well, because I know that uh, Psalm 23, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That was Paul's answer when it came to the whole question of can I eat meat sacrificed to an idol? Or do I have to just eat kale? Uh, uh, what about alcohol? How does one go about partaking in that? You're all under authority. Do you do things do you, is all of your partaking and participation because of the one to whom you belong? Even if it looks a little bit like those who don't belong to the one true God. So, similarity is not the final thing. There's, and thus, my quip about plundering the Egyptians or dumpster diving. Somebody can go, what's the difference? Plus your question. So, I ask, who's your authority? Why are you doing what you're doing? And what's the end goal of doing what you're doing? Going back to uh, marital intimacy, that's a form of joyful dominion. Oh. Great. Somebody that's not doing that, it's a form of personal dominion. They're out to serve themselves. You got to serve somebody. I'm going to. I think also, uh, in answer the question, one thing we don't want to do is downplay the role of intuition. Um, our, our intuitions are wrong, and we, we grant that. 
but um, often our intuitions do lead us in uh, directions, particularly if we're obviously being obedient, sensitive to God's um, commands, and, and uh, if, that's our, if that's our general posture, is wanting to be uh, sensitive to that. Um, and questions where there's moral gray area or we're not really sure exactly what to do, I think, I think let, let intuition help you in that. Uh, there's not going to be a formula every time. There are principles, and we apply those principles as we can, but even, even that in itself isn't um, uh, a full uh, method right, for getting the output we want every time. So it's wisdom. I'm really getting there. It's a, a matter of wisdom as well. Uh, an example, we, my wife and I have been pretty strict with our children relative to what we let them watch on TV, cell phone usage, that sort of thing. I say, I say relative, based on other people I know in similar life situations as us, with kids about our age, we're kind of on the, the more strict side. Right? Our kids sometimes don't like that as much as all their friends. You know, are getting to do more or watch more things than they get to do. But um, recently, I uh, let my two teenagers who all watch Back to the Future together. You know, Back to the Future, to, to our, our culture's standards, is pretty tame. Right? Now there are so there's some sexual innuendo, there's some cursing, that sort of thing, right? But we all watched it together because I felt intuitively it was time. It was time for my kids to be to enjoy that and we did it together as a family. We we talked about the um, uh, we enjoyed the humor, we talked about some of the other things in the movie. You know, they're ready to do that. They're ready to experience that and have those conversations, etc. Um, and so yeah, and now I get to use all the memes from that movie. Um, and they don't understand. I've used them before. They don't really understand, right? So I can talk about flux capacitor. I can, I can get my son uh, in the headlock and say, hello, good fly. Anybody home? All that makes sense now, too. So there's, there's a lot of benefits. Intuition, don't, don't uh, talk to you about that. Um, they didn't say yes, so I'm going to move forward here. So, obviously, look, you know the difference. Um, there's a place where it becomes trashy uh, and harmful and ugly, and you can't justify it uh, and call it plundering the Egyptians. The Egyptians, meaning unbelievers, do some amazing things. They build things, they make wonderful works of art. Why? Why do, why do they do that? Because they're made the image of God. They're glorifying God, even when they don't know it. Even when they, in Romans 1, talks about that, they don't acknowledge it. But we can see it in them, right? We see when someone creates something or builds something or does something amazing, uh, or work of art or music or building, that kind of thing, we can value that. We can benefit from that. We benefit in the field of medicine and art and science and all kinds of things in that sense. And we can do that without approving of everything they do. And so we know the difference in those two things. We can glean the benefits without swallowing whole. So choose before we swallow. Yes, sir. is right that um, uh, Pastor Harry, I can hear the cults worrying right? And it's such a huge question, isn't it? The, like, how do you sift the wheat from the chaff. The, the thing that it uh, calls to my mind is the huge topic that we talked about a year or two ago here of uh, how social media and other modern me- forms of media bring content to us. 
in ways which are quite disruptive. And I don't want to try and re- retrace all that stuff. What I want to give you a, a simple shortcut to help you all figure out how completely corrupted, or not, but most of you, how completely corrupted your lives have become by um, smartphone apps that are designed simply to extract revenue from you. What you can do is this. Find somebody at your church who's old, whom you respect, and ask them to tell you what sort of things they used to do when they were your age that they're not ashamed of. And then do something like that instead of all the other dumb things that you do. <laughs> and, and, and the reason for this is it, it's, a, it's a concrete way of trying to attach you to history. And what's happened is you're like about 18, 20, 25 years old. So you think that this world that you're living in is normal. Right? It, it is totally abnormal in historical terms. And if we all had more that kind of relational historical awareness, then we'd be able to glean from the Egyptians the things that are worth gleaning. I honestly want to encourage you all to do that. Think of somebody in your church, in your respect, who's old, preferably, and ask them what they used to do when they were your age, like to relax or in their spare time, that they're not ashamed of. And then do that. I'd be really interested to know what you discover. Thank you. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. My question is, gentlemen, um, uh, what is a very important lesson in your life that your parents taught you that you'll never forget? Okay, what what lessons did your parents teach you that you'll never forget? So, when I was a kid, my um, my dad was in the Navy, and we moved from place to place kind of a lot, and um, I didn't grow up with like a steady set of friends, and, um, always my people and all that. Um, and I found myself in new circumstances uh, with some frequency. And there was a time, I think I was um, five, maybe four, four or five, and we lived in these apartments. And um, the apartments were arranged in such a way it's kind of like a horseshoe. So there was a building here, a building here, and a building here. And in the center, there was a playground, like a lot of sand and playground equipment and stuff. And um, I wanted to go play on the playground. And so I said, Dad, I'm, I'm a man now. <laughs> I think I can handle the playground. And so he said, my son, go forth. So I, I went to the playground. And, and on the playground, there were a group of kids who had lived there longer than, than me. And they were big kids. Like six, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like we were, they were the they were the, the 
there were pumps, thugs, hooligans, ne'er do wells. And uh, and they informed me pretty pretty soon after my arrival that I didn't belong there. Right? And so I went running home at up to our apartment. I said, Dad, um, I uh, I can't go down there. There are giants in the land. <laughs> and they're gonna kill me. And I can't go. And my dad said to me, he says, you go back down there and you punch the biggest one in the nose. (laughs) 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 And they'll leave you alone. And I was like, you're 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 crazy, right? I mean, you're my dad, but I think you're a little bit crazy because they're going to kill me. I'm going to be a dead kid, and you're going to have paperwork to fill out. (laughs) So, uh, but but my dad knew things, and so he sent me back down there. He said, "No, I'm telling you, go down there." So I I went back down there, and I was just as afraid as, as I could be. But I wrestled, I didn't punch anybody, but I wrestled the biggest one to the ground. And sure enough, they left me alone. After that, I was, I was unbothered. Now, this is the lesson. Um, God tells us to go into the world and do things, to be unafraid. I am with you always. This is Joshua 1, right? Go. I, I am with you wherever you go. Go. You cannot fail. Jesus says, go, disciple the nation. You cannot fail. And we are timid creatures. We're afraid. But if we go in and take what God has given to us, and I'm not saying as our possession, but to go take dominion and go do this, and we're unafraid, listening to our Father who knows more than we do, then we'll be successful. So the lesson that I learned from my father was don't be afraid of bullies. Do what you know is right. Lesson I remember I was also in five. It's actually my earliest memory. He was on a playground and his kid
broken tree limbs, uh, stopping pointing out the very first cardinal I ever saw. And uh, to this day, I love cardinals. Uh, cardinals are monogamous. So you see a male cardinal, you'll always find a male, a female cardinal. And uh, it is <coughs> such, such beautiful. Um, <coughs> my father, one time, um, by the way, I, I grew up in a day when um, spankings um, were common. <laughs> and some of us had more spankings than others. And um, uh, my father would call them whippings because he is from Texas. And uh, they're whippings. For, uh, we're going to go to the boardroom um, out behind the shed. My father one time uh, gave me a, the most profound whipping I ever received in my life. Uh, it, it was one of those where he this is why he's not any taller. <laughs> My father also taught me that uh, size doesn't matter, character does. <laughs> uh, this is one of those um, playground, uh, uh, whirly go round things. He held my hand and then in a circle. Anyway, uh, it was profound. <laughs> and uh, I, I sat down on uh, the bed, bunk uh, bed, which I shared with my brother, and I was weeping, and he put his arm around me and uh, comforted me. And uh, turns out that what I had been disciplined for was actually done by my brother. Oh. <laughs> and I, I looked at my dad uh, I said, Dad, I, I didn't do that. And then my brother, who's up on the top bunk, who was watching me, <laughs> um, he puts his head over and goes, Dad, I did it. My dad then proceeded <laughs> train my brother. <laughs> but then the lesson hit me. And this is from a man who loved everyone he met and talked to anyone. He then sat next to me and he humbled himself and he asked me to forgive him. Son, I was wrong. And you forgive me. slogans. I don't really like slogans all that much, but the irony is I really like these. Uh, 
the first one, uh, I, can't, uh, I can't remember exactly how that was, around 13, probably, pretty form, uh, you know, uh, formative time. But um, a, a mentor in my life told me, and these aren't deeply spiritual, although they're connected to Christian ethics, but he said, Roy, there are two kinds of people in this world, those who make excuses and those who find a way. Now, I know we can't divide the world up like that, really. But the principle behind that has always stuck with me. And, and I share it with you because I think sometimes we forget uh, that when we think we're in a situation that's too hard, or there's no way out, or I don't think I can do this anymore, we actually can. Um, it is possible. And you have to, to grin and bear it, as my grandfather would used to say. Right? You grin and bear it, and you make your way through. Because um, don't make excuses for yourself. Find a way through it. Find a way. And sometimes that means you're going to have pain and suffering and you're going to need help and all the rest. But, uh, and so there. And then the second one uh, was from a Marine. And he liked to say, and I'm sure this is a classic Marine saying, but uh, he put it in the context of academic work. He was a professor of mine. He said, the more you sweat in peace, the less you breathe in war. And, uh, and he's talking about preparing for his exams. Uh, but he had, he had life experience, right? He had military experience. He, he, he knew that, that principle was true. Uh, and I, I think about that often. Um, how much am I sweating in peacetime? Right? How much, I mean, I mean uh, it may be an easy day for me, but am I, am I still working towards something? Because more time's coming. There's going to be a time where I'm called on to be, I'm going to be activated. Someone's going to need me. And am I working in peacetime toward those those war times? So I'll leave those two slogans and a little bit of advice with you. Um, I, I did learn quite a lot from my mum over the years. Um, I think perhaps the most significant lesson I learned, I learned in my late 20s uh, from some quite fortunate things that happened. And the lesson was, don't ever, ever commit adultery. And therefore, by extension, do absolutely everything necessary, short of bodily mutilation, to keep yourself from all forms of sexual temptation. Because I promise you, it will ruin many people's lives if you don't. We have a family in our church moved about a year and a half ago from Indiana. Uh, those of you from Nacogdoches, uh, Brittany, and she just went back, uh, had a baby that was sick, and had gone back home for about five or six weeks. And she said, I knew Texas had finally soaked in when I found myself saying to some other people, Y'all, he needs a whipping. <laughs> All right, time for maybe one more question. Um, Yes, ma'am. So, what Pastor Hotting was saying about um, finding glory and like serving in the day-to-day life, but what if you want to find that glory and serving in the day-to-day life, but you also want to do different things to be challenged, not necessarily because you're discontent, but because you want to grow and be challenged and have stories for your grandkids and kids or whatever, just have experiences. So how do you go about doing that with rest in your life? Okay, I'll start with that. Um, little glories turn into big glories. So you're faithful and little. 
of what God's put on your plate on that day. And I've taught on this years past at some of the things. And so it's one of my go-to's when David was young, about attending, as his big brother referred to it, as those few sheep. Uh, he was a low man on the totem pole, but he wasn't just out grumbling about having to be the one that has to go out and do that. Uh, what else was he doing while he was out there, you know? He learned to play the harp, um, which landed him a job in the palace later. He learned to write, and we still sing his songs. He learned to use a slingshot, uh, which came in handy in the next chapter, by the way. Uh, uh, what's that? He learned to hand fight. He learned to fist fight lions and bears. Lions and bears, uh, uh, grabbing them by the beard, and uh, uh, he uh, became a warrior uh, while he was doing what? Being a shepherd. He became the shepherd of Israel. He didn't know all of that while he was in the sheep field, but he had God as his audience at that point, and what did God say? He said he was looking for a man after his own heart. And he exalted David in due time. So you should be looking for bigger, better, uh, more glorious things for the future. But the way to get them is to be, instead of waiting and, and doing nothing, waiting for that to show up, you're busy doing what God has given you to do. And I think I titled that thought, Training in Obscurity. But God is always your audience. He is always, back to my lesson, he is always watching. And when you demonstrate yourself to be faithful in washing the dishes and going to work and paying your bills and being kind and diligent and faithful, and uh, then he says, okay, that's, I need you. I've got a spot for you. Uh, your resume is now uh, equipped, and I'm going to place you in another position. And the other thing I said, just a comment about glory. Uh, glory is like a magnifying glass. We're images of God, and what we're to do is to reflect his image in a way. I mean, God is glorious all by himself, right? Uh, but he's called us as his image bearers to shine the light on him. Let your light so shine before him that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So whatever the task is, you're to magnify him. And so he's already glorious. It's like a bride. She's already, a woman is glorious, but on her wedding day, uh, after everybody's, all her attendants have gotten her ready, I don't know what goes on back there, but it's amazing. <laughs> and then when she appears at the back of the church and everyone stands and looks, this glorious woman is now a glorified woman, uh, magnified, so that, oh, look, every, all eyes are moved in that direction. Uh, some of you know I like to do woodworking and I turn bowls. Wood is glorious. If you just study wood, Pastor uh, uh, Steve is a wood turner too, and uh, wood is just by itself is glorious. Those trees just glorious. But then there's a dead one on the ground, and it's going to be burned, and you go out there as a wood turner, you cut a piece, and you turn it into a bowl, and you put finish on it, and you see all the grain is it's, uh, it's magnified. It's, it's a way of adding glory to glory. And so, um, if I can use that metaphor, is when I first, my first bowl 
was pretty amazing to me, but it's probably not amazing to anybody else. Uh, now I make bigger bowls and better bowls, and I, I'm getting better and better at it as I go, and I think that's a good metaphor for our life. So just be uh, doing what you're doing, but always looking for new opportunities, and at the right time, God will open those up. Anything else? I'll, I'll probably butcher the quote, but G.K. Chesterton one time said the most uh, extraordinary thing is an ordinary man and an ordinary woman and their ordinary children. That's extraordinary. Uh, I've come to call this the ordinary, the glory of the ordinary. And you can direct them to a particular pastor or to the panel as a whole. Seth, is that a hand or are you going to just trade it? Um, it was interesting, I was reading Henry Wright's uh, new book on the New Testament and, and the opening intro cites a scholar from the 20th century, Dodd, New Testament scholar, and uh, he was, somebody asked him if, if all the manuscripts in the New Testament were destroyed, did he create uh, the New Testament? And he paused for a moment and said, yes, I think so. And somebody said, how, how could you do that? He said, well, it's just a small book. <laughs> so uh, um, all of us uh, are important. Uh, obviously, you're, I tell you, Dawson Trotman was the guy who founded the Navigators character uh, organization. He created something called the Top of the Memory System, which I recommend. You can get it on Amazon or whatever. It's a packet of cards. And it's a system of how to memorize. I don't get into all that now. I've talked about it before. But he, here's how he started that. He was in the Navy, and he said, I determined that any time I was asked a question that I couldn't answer, I was going to go to the Bible and find the answer and memorize the answer so that I would never get asked that question again without an answer. That would be a, a great approach. So little by little, as you face different situations and maybe people in your family or different beliefs and, and so forth, each of us is going to have a different uh, kind of thing coming at us. So that would be one way to do it. Another way to do it is look at the areas where you think you're weak. You have a problem with your temper, a problem with lust, a problem with uh, whatever. Uh, go look up passages of Scripture and memorize a few verses about that. And, and go over-memorize them so you can virtually say them backwards and forward. And uh, they're always with you. So I'm a, I'm a, uh, uh, I like tools. And I'll even go with my wife. Uh, if I have to change a light bulb in the house, I have to use every tool I own, uh, it, it appears. Um, and I make you know, many trips out to my shop to go get one more tool that I didn't think I needed, but now I do. But uh, having tools at uh, Pastor Jeffrey's house isn't going to help me a bit. He could have all the tools in the world. I could know what they are, and I could know they're there. But if I don't have access to them, they're worthless. 
scriptures that way. You can have lots of translations of the Bible. You can carry your Bible to church. You can carry it to camp. You can have it on the shelf. But when you need it, it needs to be here. Or here. Or both. Okay? Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I given my heart that I might not sin against thee. When I get tempted, my Bible might not be within reach. And if it is, I might not know where to go. But if I have hidden it in me, it's right there. It's ready to go. What did Jesus do when he was tempted? According to Scripture. Came in pretty handy. So it's more than handy. It's essential. And so I think Scripture memory is... is, And and, and let me urge you, while you're young, you can memorize a lot easier now than you can when you get older because your brains are more agile. And, but I tell you what, uh, a lot of the scripture that I know I learned when I was your age. I had a friend that pushed me in this regard. Get a partner. Say, hey, you want to memorize some scripture? Let's memorize 20 verses in the next uh, three months. And you agree on those, and then every time you see each other, you say, can you say your verse? And that, see that, most people do that for a week, and then they quit. But my friend did it endlessly. I got to where I hated to see you coming. Because <laughs> I knew, and, and I have to confess, there were times when I memorized the scripture because I just didn't want to disappoint him, and I didn't want to embarrass myself. But in time, I came to love it, and, and I'm eternally thankful for it. Did you know there is a word in Arabic for a man who knows the Quran by heart? We have no word like that in English for somebody who knows the Bible by heart. Because you don't need one, which is a shame. You know, the Muslims have all the fun. <laughs> so that's the second thing. Um, uh, you can play games. <laughs> Sorry, Becky. Um, so when Becky and Ben and Abby were young, we used to teach them Bible verses. We teach them the Psalms by doing one line at a time and then miss off the last words and they have to get the last word. Right? So blessed is the man who does <laughs> sorry <laughs> what can the council offer? We did wrong translation anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we learned like the Psalms that way. And we now have a, a game where we sit in the car and they and I'll say a Bible verse and they've got to tell me where it comes from, and they say a Bible verse, and I've got to tell them where it comes from. We do that. The other thing is, it's all about motivation, though. So we went on vacation with the Capones a few years ago. <laughs> and I, I think I just done some teaching on First Peter, maybe some, some sanctions or something. And they really wanted to go to Golden Corral. When we finally got to Golden Corral, Zachary had steak with chocolate sauce. <laughs> anyway, the, the reason they went is, so I said, look, okay, I will take you all to Golden Corral if you can memorize the book of First Peter between And they did it in like three days. So just think for a second, right? Muslims have a word for somebody who's memorized the Quran. And I can get a bunch of teenagers to memorize first Peter by promising them holy Quran. <laughs> <laughs> I really think it's about motivation. Like really. 
It's not. It's not a very big It's not bad, right? So I think we we probably we make it into more of a big thing. We like solidify it. We read it a lot. Yeah, and most scripture, a lot of people get this idea it's not going to spend hours You spend five minutes a day doing this, write it on a card, pick it in your pocket, wherever you share it from. And again, get the topical memory system. If you want to get started, that is a wonderful, wonderful system for learning how to memorize it and retain it. Um, I do this thing, I, I, I've done it here before, but I'll do it again just because I like to do it. It's fun. Uh, I went to Oklahoma Baptist University when I was 18, and they had this crazy school yell called CARIP. And you had to memorize it the first week you were at school as a freshman, because if you didn't, if any of the upperclassmen asked you to say it and you couldn't, then they could make you do humiliating things, and, you know, march around in your pajamas and sing out a little teapot and things like that. It wasn't like really cruel, but. So here's the yell. Okay, I learned this when I was 18. And uh, this is an illustration of overlearning something. Grip, crap, crystal, dimple, tap, overlearn, overlearn, for about a time, talking to the people who have down the stink line, and the lead to the world, and the Oh, oh, hoogie, with two-year, two-year, can. Ragula, tagula, melody, man. Let it go rip, let it go roost. Pingy, with tiny, with firm, with this, this thing, OBE. And we had to be able to do that in under six seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am, 50 years later, and I can still do it. <laughs> Probably when I'm old and senile, I'll be saying, Rip. <laughs> I don't know what I have for lunch, but I will be able to say that. <laughs> it doesn't take a lot of time. It does take a commitment and a plan, and uh, it will change your life. It will. I can't think of it anything better to do with five minutes of your day. I have prayer that we tried that earlier today. Mm -hmm. All right. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Um, as Christians, how are we to view cremation in relation with the theology of the body? Okay. How are we as Christians to view cremation in, in relation to a theology of the body? And so I have some thoughts on that, but I'm going to let the other guys go first to see if I'm wrong. <laughs> I always stick to my thoughts. Um, I think a great deal of our thoughts about, uh, uh, of the, about the theology of the body are good. I don't think we have a great deal of direct command and so forth in, in regard to this question. Obviously, let's think about this a moment. If someone were to be burned up in a house, a house fire, and uh, their remains destroyed, or they were blown up in a bomb, or they were lost at sea, or any number of other ways that the human body could be physically destroyed, is that going to be a problem at the resurrection for God? So that's one point, I think, to keep in place. And some of these things are driven by tradition. And I do think both the Jewish and Christian tradition has shown enormous respect for the human body. And in fact, um, there's a book I'd recommend. Uh, I don't remember his name. Wong is the last name of the author. 
and the title of the book is Accompany Them with Singing. And it's a book about Christian funerals. And he, he goes back into the Hebrew tradition. So one of the things the Hebrews would do is the female, there the names of this, a group of women would wash the body and dress the body. And while they did so, the men would do the same for the men, they would sing the songs. <clears throat> the picture was we're taking this person and their body. Um, if, if, if I remember the kids sometimes would go to a funeral and his body in a casket, it was open casket, and somebody would say, Well, that's not really Joe. That's not true. That really is Joe. That's not all of Joe, but it's Joe. I can recognize Joe. Um, I saw Joe two weeks ago, and that's Joe. Um, Again, it's just not all of Joe, but that is, the Joe's going to be resurrected. And so showing respect, I think theologically this is the, the strongest argument for burial, I think. It begins, the idea of burning the fire that was associated with it, the concept of hell, and we're being disrespectful to deliberately do this. Uh, and so, again, they would bathe, dress, sing, because the picture was the community is now going to accompany this person, this body, to the next leg of their journey. And we're going to do it together. We're going to say farewell. And so, again, the picture here of burial and care for the body, which is a matter of showing what we just got through talking about, respect for the material world that God made, and not treating it as something just to be burned up thrown away. Now, I think that's a, a good argument. I'm not personally prepared to make it an absolute moral uh, issue. I think there are places in the world, Japan being one of them, where burial is, first of all, burial is enormously expensive here. Uh, and there, because limited land and so forth, you get a two square foot plot. You can be buried vertically, um, uh, hanging in a tube. I'm not sure which end goes down. Uh, but being cremated becomes a, a way of uh, sometimes it's necessary for sanitation if there's a big plague. Uh, there's other, uh, there are good reasons, I think, for something like cremation. Uh, I was very disappointed when we built our church building because in Texas now you cannot have a cemetery within two miles of the city limits thanks to the EPA. Um, so I was happy to hear, my mother passed away a couple of weeks ago, the new cemetery in Bossier City outside of Shreveport, where you can be buried without a casket, without a vault, uh, just wrapped in a shroud and put the ground cowboy style. And actually the funeral home director said, I bought a plot there for myself. Uh, I guess he recognized an enormous amount of money spent in the funeral industry with caskets and all those kinds of things. So it's a complicated question, I guess. Uh, anyway, so uh, somebody told me, well, you, you can have a, a place for uh, putting ashes. You can't have a cemetery in the church. And I call it, I'm joking, they call it a creamery. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, that, that's my, a few thoughts on it. Is I, 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 I very strongly prefer a burial. But then again, that's all I've known and preferred. And for the reasons I gave, but I'm not prepared to say that I think cremation is a sin. It's an interesting question because it, it connects to two other 
um, factors that you want to bear in mind when you're trying to answer questions. And one is the context in which it's being asked. Because quite often when this question is being asked, somebody's just died. And that's not a great time for controversial theological conversation that could cost some thousands of dollars to change their mind. So but you, you actually got to be sensitive to that. And so I'm hoping we part of the booth about that. It's interesting though that this is the second thing. How we read the Bible and, and what we ex- how we expect it to teach us. It's not just we're looking for sentences that have an imperative verb in them. One of the questions you should be asking is, what are the associations in scripture of different types of burial or, or different ways of disposing of a human body. Like burning a human body is what pagans do. Uh, it's how you desecrate an altar in first Kings 13. Whereas burying is what a seed does before it comes up out of the ground ready like as a picture of the resurrection. So it's a little bit like in, in the Bible there is no verse that tells you baptized by pouring water from above rather than immersing. But I'm convinced that we must pour water from above. It's not that immersion is invalid baptism, but it's because of the associations of that imagery. Always, without fail, in the Bible being submerged in water is judgment from God, whereas water coming from above is the blessing of God. Which think for all the examples of that. So it's not an, an appropriate sensitivity to the Bible will make us alert to those ways in which Scripture communicates. And I think for that reason, I'm, frankly, right I'm convinced that this is the, the right thing to do. But I, you know, I, I wouldn't have a moral objection to doing it differently for all these other reasons. Okay, uh, okay. Other, qu- other questions? Should Christians join the military? Well, uh, I'll give a quick answer and then open this up to other guys who uh, have some points of view on this. Uh, Jesus, uh, when the Romans soldiers uh, came to Christ, he didn't tell them they had to quit. Um, he told them, stop stealing from people. Um, don't use your authority and power inappropriately. Uh, basically, he, he, I think, commanded them to go back and be Christian soldiers, be Christians, and be soldiers, and be to represent Christ in those positions. Now, I think there could be, and maybe in our modern military, these issues are coming up, where if being in this requires you to sin, uh, then that is, I think, a place where it would give us pause. So are you going to be required to do things that are opposed, that are openly disobedient to God, then you would have to say no. Uh, but on the face of it, in principle, uh, I think it's I think Christians may be in the military and defend their countries. But again, that doesn't mean that next week they're not going to face a dilemma because they may be ordered into immoral action. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Where else you guys want to add to that? Okay. And we can have further discussion about particulars if you want. But uh, what else? All right, so we 
you ask me questions. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, you mentioned that everyone needs monitoring. Uh, what are the best, like you mean by that, like accountability? What would be the best way to find personal accountability? So the question is uh, about the idea that everybody needs monitoring and personal accountability. I would recommend an angle bracelet. <laughs> um, I think that varies with who you are, what your situation is. Um, but the goal, I think, uh, again, I learned this uh, from Dr. Rusty, I think he's right about this. The ultimate goal is self government under God. That I am so aware and conscious of God and His Word and what He requires of me, and my desire to please Him, that if nobody's around and nobody's looking, Again, the thing my father taught me is God always see you. So I always have a monitor. Cultivating an awareness of the presence of God through scripture memory, through prayer, through fellowship, and community, so that I recognize God is always with me. So that's my first accountability. Second, he has given me people, and a lot of the ways God manifests his presence to me is through other Christians. So if there's somebody near you, a spouse, a friend, a sibling, a roommate, and you say, you know what, I'm, sometimes I'm tempted to this, would you be willing to hold me accountable? Would you, you see me doing this? Would you say something? Uh, there's, there's any number of layers that you can do this formally and informally. Uh, one thing I like to add to this, and again, I'm going to let guys speak to this, um, sometimes people ask me as a pastor, would you be my accountability partner? <laughs> And my answer is no. Uh, not because I don't want to, not because I wouldn't like to help you, and I am willing to help you, but I can't do that. I don't have time to do that. I'm, I'm trying to be accountable myself and do the things I need to do. I can't follow you around, and I can't call you every day and say, are you being good? Uh, are you doing what you're supposed to do? Now, I think you can do things like a scripture memory partner, you could say, look, I'll tell you what I will do. I will, when I see you every Sunday, I'll, I'll ask you how you're doing. Now, you can lie to me. Um, you can get around that accountability. Sometimes that is, a, I think, a cover for not wanting to take responsibility. And one other thing I'd say about that is sometimes people say, I'm struggling with this or that sin. And then when I ask them to describe what they're doing to struggle, what they really mean is I'm capitulating to this. There's no struggle whatsoever. Oh, really, what books have you read? Who have you talked to? What scripture have you memorized? No boxes get checked. So in other words, you're not struggling at all. You've, you've given in, and, and your excuse is that it's a struggle. Yeah, I know it's hard, but everything's hard. It's worth doing, but you got to do it. And sometimes that is getting somebody else involved in your life. Uh, and again, I think that depends on where you are in life, and who's around you, what it is you're trying to address. Yeah, I know we all deal with that question. Uh, so, dive in. Yeah, I'll just add one thing, but I'd say that the same as Pastor Duke in some ways, can I be any of my accountability partner? Um, however, I do make an exception to that in relation to um, these apps that you can get on the phone that. Um, uh, basically monitor what the content of the screen or what you're typing in for salacious, pornographic, polemic content. So I've got, I don't know, probably approaching 10 guys in the congregation um, who I get an email once a week. And normally it's fine, occasionally um, something is there in 
something comes up, I don't, I, I don't say I'm going to get involved in some lengthy time-consuming thing. I'm, what I say is I'm going to email you and your wife, and uh, I want to reply to both of you in 24 hours to explain to the, well, what it is, what happened, and that you talked about it. And the reason I think that works is, and it, actually single guys as well, um, nobody really wants to have a conversation with their partner. <laughs> and, so, and so what it does is it, it, it brings into the moment of temptation some of the feelings that the, the devil is delaying from your experience that would normally arise later. It brings them forward to the moment where you need those feelings of kind of shame and remorse ahead of time so that you can, um, you know, you don't want to say that to your mother-in-law or your future mother-in-law later. Um, so yeah, that, I think that's helpful. But um, yeah, the, the, the goal of pastoral ministry is not to persuade anybody to lean on their pastor for all the time. Uh, the, the goal of pastoral ministry is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which I take in a very broad sense, not just in the sense of what we do. and we can apply prayer to this um, uh, monitoring your cell phone activity or whatever. Um, uh, among the, the things listed in the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Self-control. Um, y'all need to learn to control yourselves. Uh, it's not hard to do some of the things that you're asked to do. It's not hard to memorize scripture, as you pointed out. It's not that hard. Uh, we're convinced that things are hard and because we live in a time where um, y'all are soft. Uh, you're, you're delicate. Uh, you think that there are things that you just can't do. But, but you can do them. Don't don't be soft. Memorizing scripture is not hard. Uh, praying is not hard. We think it's hard, so we don't do it. Uh, it's not hard to not look at porn on your phone. But you've got yourself convinced that it's difficult, and so you have to do it. Get control of yourself. I, I can't control you. You can control me. Get control of yourself. One of the one of the lies that we have believed as a culture is that quitting cigarette smoking is very hard. Who told us that quitting cigarettes is hard? The cigarette companies. <laughs> you know, uh, to quit smoking, the, the, has anybody in here ever uh, smoked cigarettes and, and then quit? Okay, I, I'm the only guy. So, uh, all right. So I quit smoking. I quit. I quit. I quit, I quit smoking uh, a long time ago, and I remember thinking that this is going to be the hardest thing that I have to do. It wasn't that hard. Once I just decided I've got to stop doing this, I was the, the discomfort that you experience when you're craving a cigarette is roughly the equivalent of being a little bit hungry. <laughs> right? That's the level of discomfort we feel when we don't want to pray. 
that's the level of discomfort we experience when we don't want to memorize scripture, when we feel like we have to look at that thing on our phone. It's just a matter of realizing that you're way stronger than you imagine you are. Toughen up. Have some self-control. Take, take charge. You are the image bearer of God. You're not just uh, waves being acted upon by the world. Here is the lesson. <laughs> I just got a pound from Pastor Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> right, I want to close with this. Use this smartphone for something smart. <laughs> Scripture memory. You can get apps for that, believe it or not. Uh, there are uh, things that help you with prayer life. Uh, maybe start asking, okay, I've got this. I'm going to plunder the Egyptians, and I'm not going to dumpster dive. This is both. This is a dumpster. Recognize the dumpster? Okay. There's also gold in here. It's a blessing. Exercising dominion over the earth. Created tool. Tools in themselves are not evil. Hammers are not evil. Unless you're hitting somebody in the head with one on purpose. Okay. And the hammer is not evil. You're evil. This is not evil. But your heart can be. What you use this for is a tool is either for good or evil. Your body is the same way. Your mind is the same way. Every tool you have is the same way. Your car, okay? your dinner fork, you can kill somebody with it, maybe you can cut your feet with it, uh, and live. So it's not the world that's the problem. It's you and me. We're the problem. And God has given us this holy Father, we thank you that we are not left alone with ourselves as God. Because every time we try that, we fail. We wreck ourselves, we wreck other people, and we kill, we die. Thank you for your word that gives life. Thank you for your spirit that gives life. Thank you for your body, the church, which is life. Thank you putting us in that, for putting your spirit and your word in us. Help us now, Lord, to take this seriously, to go forth with a commitment to lay a firm foundation for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, we have free time now until dinner, which is at 6, I think. We're going to double check this and make sure I'm not leaving something out. Thank you, Pastor. Yes, supper at 6, 6 to 7, next session, after Jeffrey at 7 o'clock. And here we will, if Ronnie's here, we'll do the photograph just before that session. We'll talk the times up a little bit. Uh, if not, if he, he's at work and he comes later. If not, we'll do it after that session and do a group photo in here tonight. All right. Yes, sir. I was wondering, uh, since Pastor Jeffrey was talking about Nehemiah chapter 3, I was wondering uh, what we, what we can infer about citizens' relationship to the government from that chapter and how the citizens' relationship involves the city. Okay. 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 Okay.
So the question, what should we infer about a citizen's relationship to their government in view of the fact that Nehemiah, who's appointed as governor, has a whole bunch of people serving for a, a civic rebuilding project? Yeah. Well, you'd infer that there are circumstances in which it's right to obey a government's instruction to engage in a civic rebuilding project. I mean, it's interesting that at the same time, the emphasis in Nehemiah 3 appears to be on the voluntary service of those men and women. There's no evidence of formal legal proceedings against the men of other villages who didn't participate. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what's going on there. I'll make a comment about the question behind the question. Um, we do all of our worst theology, especially pastoral and practical theology, by reaction. And what I mean is like a pendulum swinging effect. And so we are all living in a context where for many decades, generations even, you have too much civil government. And so what we're likely to do is to do our practical theology by reaction and become sort of Christian QAnon libertarian hyperactivists. I mean, you're smiling, uh, you, you recognise the caricature because it's um, there's some um, there's enough truth in it to, to, for it to be recognisable. Um, uh, and it, so it's, it's very bad for us to expose ourselves to uh, information landscapes which encourage reactivity and um, which seek to promote over-engagement by eliciting negative emotion like fear uh, and frustration and anxiety and so on. And most, generally most, conservative political engagement that I observe is basically a mirror image of woke activism. So what woke activism does it tries to create a context in which the woke activist is the victim of something because in consequence of um, postmodernism and Foucault and Marcuse and so on, the way that woke ethics works is the victim is always right. Okay. So what conservatives have started to do is to create artificial contexts in which they are the victims so that they can solicit or elicit the support quote unquote, of other Christians and conservatives. And it's pitiful. Right? Nehemiah and his companions were building the wall. Right? They weren't out posturing, trying to do things that had a veneer of righteousness about them, so that other people, other secular rulers would take pot shots at them and get on their backs so that they can then portray themselves as the righteous victims. So you have a job to do, um, you have calling to engage, you have a long-term project of being a godly man, being a hard-working 
in due time, perhaps husband, father, um, rinse and repeat day and night, worship God for 70, 80, 90 years, and then die. So, uh, I, I realize I've extended the answer beyond your question, but I, I just take the question behind the question, you know, and I think I'll probably get back, right? So, yeah, yeah. Um, I've got my hands going up while I'm speaking. Are there related questions? And do you have a way to jump in before? Yeah, those? Okay, go ahead. It's a little bit of a big question. Um, so, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is talking about his, the rights that he has as, as a minister of the Lord, yeah. and then specifically the, the laying aside of those rights. And yeah. in the U.S., of course, we see a lot about the constitutional rights that we have as well as the natural rights or the natural law. Yeah. So, how are we talking about that if there's a civil authority that's exercising tyranny? How are we, we go, often, especially as conservative Christians, we go, oh, we have these rights. Yes, yes. We should be laid them aside and suffer the injustice as opposed to protesting. Well, yeah. Repeat the question. Yeah, so, First uh, Corinthians 9, Paul talks about the, um, the, his rights as minister of the gospel, which he voluntarily laid aside. Um, and I guess the question is, is there a sort of parallel in the way that we ought to relate to um, in a civil sphere where rights that, have, that ought to be constitutionally guaranteed are being challenged? Should we, is, it, is it possible that one Christian response is to willingly lay those aside? Yeah, of course, it's possible. That doesn't mean that it's always required. So by analogy, um, Paul voluntarily forewent his right to financial support and ministry of the gospel. But there are circumstances in which it would be right for a pastor to leave a church that was refusing to pay him or supporting his family or was underpaying him, which is what happens normally, um, because um, he needs to support his family. So, so sometimes one insists on one's rights and sometimes one's not. There's a wisdom issue there. And I'll talk about that a bit this about the methodology of the, how we get the wisdom. Um, I make a comment about the, the civil thing particularly. Um, the, I, I don't think we have fully, and this is probably back to the previous question about the theology by reaction, um, I don't think we fully um, taken on board as a, as a reformed community um, what opposition to and living under ungodly civil authorities is like. So 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13 are written in a context where uh, Nero is or is about to be emperor. So just let that sink in for a second. Um, Think about what Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 say about how institutions are authority. Um, and what that means is if, if we are intending to insist on our rights and resist, and look, you know, this is the country that I chose to move to, right? From a country that I love. So you can imagine what I must think of your constitution. Right? I think it's one of the most miraculous political documents ever written. I, I love the American constitution. I'm not trying to undercut it or the campaign. But if we're going to insist on our rights, what we should expect to happen is not um, 
I managed to build a social media following from other like-minded angry young men. Like, if, if you want to, if you want to do this, um, uh, Christ not Caesar thing, you should expect the outcome that you see in the first century from those who, who did that, which is Christ martyred and many followers likewise. So, kind of both ways. I think what we've embraced is a kind of boutique. Um, hyper-comfortable posturing counterfeit of standing against Caesar. Right? I'm insisting on my rights by tweeting. <laughs> well, you go. I mean, like, really. Um, that, okay, so, I don't know whether I'm quite getting the question you're asking. Can I give an example? Yeah, sure, sure. Perhaps there would be a local civil magistrate that said, let's mass, we're going to mass. And perhaps, and perhaps we, as a church, said, let's go ahead and be assaulting. Let's go ahead and protest. Let's be assaulting. Let's exercise our rights. Yeah. Is that is that reactionary posture that you speak of? Um, it is very possible that a church that did regular psalm things and just said, oh, it's going to try and do this, might be well motivated in doing so. It is equally possible that what was, was going on was um, uh, opportunism and, and an attempt to create a context in which we are the victims of agreements. Um, and it's also possible that if that's going on, that latter case among some, not always, but quite some of the Christians, that the civil magistrates are also at fault. But you could have a tyrant who is being unpo- opposed in a really foolish and ungodly way by Christians. <laughs> like, that's, that's what normally happens in my state. Um, the, the, the real fighters, the real soldiers, are the people who whose lives display an awareness of what the Bible actually says about how the kingdom is built. What the Bible says about how the kingdom is built is um, it's long term, mostly invisible. And occasionally the people who stick their heads above the parapet get them shot off. So it's either um, Master or Ruthen Boaz, normally. So the real warriors of the kingdom are the mums and dads and husbands and fathers and, and wives and mothers and, and young people who just go about doing their thing. Like, it's fascinating to me, and I've read this point before, it brought up some science back in 2015. In the days of the judges, who are the movers and shakers? Well, it's often, right? It's Othniel, it's Edward, it's Gideon, it's Samson, it's Jephthah. No, it's not, actually. It's some old geezer who owns a barley field and a Moabite widow who doesn't even speak the language properly. They are the people who changed the world. And they did so by just being faithful and being shrewd and keeping the law and getting married. And they didn't even pass on their names to the children who are born, because um, Boaz is, a, is a, a standing for Elimelech, and when the child is born, all women in the town say, a son has been born to Naomi. 
So Ruth and Barazov would still have been just set set up. So I just what I want to do, I think just I said this is funny, isn't it? Just work hard, get married, and all that that path you have kids if you can, school them, worship them, love them and laugh and feast and sing psalms and worship God and get them the like to wipe away the puke from all over the walls and then get to explain it and then die. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and then wait a thousand generations. Yeah, we all, I, I've been around a long time, and we've got quite a lot of things to say. Probably 80%. There's not always time to address it, so. Okay. It's a really great question. I, I, I'll say one more thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel your, your frustration. I feel your, your pain and your irritation. And when I was your age, and a bit older, um, I used to tweet and blog and all that stuff. And I think it does some good. But I think the, 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 the cost, the, the, the price is way too high in a thousand different ways psychological, emotional, relational, uh, social. Every second that you spend trying to fix the world is a second you're not spending playing gender with your three year old. Like, what do you want to do? You know, you're on your deathbed. Like, I so wish I'd spend more time tweeting. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wish I'd spend more time playing Jane with my three-year-old. One thing I would add is, uh, in, in Reformed theology, we talked about sphere authority, and so that is great for church and family. These are all authorities God has appointed. And I do see sometimes an imbalance in our circles. Uh, there's almost a uh, despising of civil government. And I think that's wrong. God created it because it's good. Is it corrupted? Is it misused? Yeah. How about families? Are they good? Are they corrupted? Are they misused? Is authority abused there? Is there negligence there? Is there incompetence in the family? How about the church? The problem is all of these spheres are occupied by sinners. And there's a lot of incompetence and sin and abuse and overstepping the line. And the Bible corrects that also. It calls each of those spheres to repentance. And these spheres overlap. And many of us pastors have seen this situation where we'll have a father, for example, who's very strong, very patriarchal, he's in charge of his family, his wife, his daughters, and it may be a very loving family. He's big on his authority, he's not so big when it comes to submitting to authority in the church. And it dawned on me some years back, I was teaching Bible study to men on how to love your wives. And I did one lesson on the bride of Christ. And I said, all right, tonight, men, this going to sound weird in our context, but tonight, you're the bride. Because as a member of the church, you are the bride of Christ. You want to leave your wife? Show her what that looks like. Submit to your husband, Christ. Do what he says. And model for her what a bride is supposed to look like in loveliness, in submission, in joy, in respect, all those things. Show her. Don't just tell her, show her. 
Comes to civil realm, yes, there's, a, there's mostly incompetence and sin. Uh, there's, there are more nefarious things also, but mostly those things. What does, again, Romans 13 say? The, 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 the civil magistrate is a minister of who? Who? God. To do what? To restrain evil. To reward the good. And yes, it oversteps, just like the fathers do, just like the church does sometimes. And the Word of God corrects that. And we should be we should be engaged in all these spheres and seeking to sanctify them, seeking, seeking to bring them into conformity to the Word. By example and by work. So, enough of anything else, guys, on that question. Yes, sir. So I have a question kind of related to some of the talks yesterday um, with a little bit of a preface. I believe that we live in a very distracted world. Everybody's distracted. I'm distracted. And in the Screwtape letters, the senior demon writes to the junior demon about convincing man of his own time and, and how much of a, uh, a good thing that is for the demons. And I just wanted to your on that. I'm not 100% sure exactly where you're going with that question. I'd just like to comment and then let some other guys step in here. The, um, um, yeah, we, can, we all have how many hours a day? Uh, the same, right? All of us. And we have to spend all of them. Now we use metaphors, we waste time, we save time, we invest time. Uh, and we do all have to make decisions of what to do with time. How do we go about that? How do we prioritize that? Because I can be, have, I can make time idle too. And you're going to, we're going to all fill our time with what we think is important. Here's the deal. You do what you think is important. So I'm asking you to the question, what is, important, what is actually important? And who should determine that? You or the Lord? Who sets your priorities? Well, I'm too busy to memorize scripture. I'm too busy to participate in that. I'm too, I'm too this. Then you're right. You're too busy. Uh, because we're to, the Lordship of Christ is the Lordship over time as well. And I'm not sure if that's what you're asking, but I do think we need to self-consciously recognize God is the one who gives us the time. He tells us to do what with it? To redeem the time. Make sure that time is being used in a productive way to advance this kingdom in us first, in our families, in the church, in the world. And that's the order, by the way. After that. Yes, ma'am. My parents and I have been talking a lot about um, actively and intentionally preparing for the rest of your life, whether that be marriage or families. And so I wanted to know what specific um, habits or skills or books y'all recommend. Um, I know Doug Wilson talked about um, waiting for your life to be interrupted for women in particular. So I wanted to know what you specific. Yes. I'm sure some of your wisdom. When you buy cakes. There are all kinds of things that we ought 
be doing. We ought to be thinking in terms of um, uh, 20 years from now us, right? Be doing things today that um, social 20, 40 year old me was going to be grateful for. Right? This, this just doing things, selling things now that will pay the kinds of dividends in the future that 40 year old you is going to look back at 20 year old you and go, good job buddy, you know, thanks, thanks for that. Among the, the most important things, this is where my head is these days, this is what I'm thinking about. Um, among the most important things that you can do is cultivate a habit of prayer. Um, prayer, Pastor Ruth, I think that you said this last night, prayer is not a tool. Prayer is the goal. Prayer is the reward. Um, what you are doing when you are praying is you are connecting with our Lord by means of the Spirit in communion, and you are doing work on behalf of the world and yourself. Um, you're changing everything. So the, the first thing is cultivating a habit of prayer. And then always be doing something that is beneficial uh, and, and, not, and not wasteful. Um, the, the what of how that looks, that's going to vary from person to person, what your particular goals are, what, you, what you're after. Um, but just always be, as Pastor Luther said, always be redeeming the time. Always be using your time well. Don't waste time. Um, I don't know, but John Piper's a guy that, uh, you know, a lot of us would look at and go, oh, yeah, he's cute and all that. <laughs> John Piper has really been helpful in my life. Um, and sometimes he oversets things, uh, and sometimes he uses way more words than he needs to use in order to say it. But um, his little book, Don't Waste Your Life, uh, is a book that at 61, I still think about. I still refer to. What is what is my life mean? What am, what am I doing with, with my life? I don't want to get to the point where at some point I just say, okay, I'm done, and I'm going to uh, he uses the, the, the analogy of collecting shells uh, and playing golf for the rest of my life. But that's not what you are for. It's not, you know, golf and shells are bad things. You are made for more than that. And so be thinking in terms of why am I here? What am I, what am I doing with my life? And if that is the way you're thinking, if you, if you get that thing to click and lock in place, then all the other things are going to kind of take care of themselves. I, I found myself answering these questions so many times. And I, I want to try and think of a different way of answering it. So here goes, Ken. Ladies, imagine you're a guy. Um, what is more attractive in the first week of three sentences? A lady who's just sort of waiting and, and really just kind of drifting down the street. And she might have a job, but it's not a job that's stretching to her. She might read stuff, but she's not really reading much. She might do things, but she's not really doing things that require much initiative, commitment, energy, preparation, time. She seems to spend a lot of time doing kind of not, not trivial, but not particularly weighty measures. Right? Or a woman who is 
while conscious of the financial um, issues of like investing in expensive education or training, is nonetheless trying to stretch herself, push herself, um, take on new challenges. What's more appealing? Right? I mean, the answer is obvious. Okay? And when Pastor Wilson is talking about you know, waiting, I, I think if, if anything that's probably, I don't know what he had in mind, but I suspect it's more directed towards guts, about whom we'll talk on another occasion. But, but genuinely, a, a, a woman who is in her 20s and who is, I spoke to a young lady here about this today actually, a woman who is really energetically pursuing her vocation and really working hard to get it's demanding and challenging and she's had setbacks but she's, she's really doing the best she can it's a really worthy and um, uh, beneficial thing to be doing it's profoundly attractive to the right kind of guy you want to become attractive to the right kind of guy right? it's easy to become attractive to the wrong kind of guy you just buy a couple hundred dollars worth of revealing clothes but that, but becoming the kind of woman that the kind of man you want to marry would fall in love That's, I guess that's what I'm going to say. Is that, is that, does that make any sense? Okay. Sit down before I can follow the question. Video, Dr. Bradley. Our book, you guys, with our book. How many of you read his book about how to pray? Right, so it's very so important. Okay, so that I refer to it. I thought that I recommend a book called A Praying Life, Paul Miller. There's a, there's a lot of good books on there. There's something you got to do. Something's going to change your life. Something that you need to be better at because you're not born knowing how to do this. Then do the book. Somebody else who's, who has thought about it uh, and put together some lessons on it and giving you some tips and ways. Uh, to become better at it, then read a book. Uh, invest a few hours. You know, I talked about struggling myself, my, struggling in my prayer life. Oh, really? How? What are the struggles? Have you read a book? Have you gotten counsel? Have you got advice? Have you uh, practiced? Practice some more. Get better at it. You don't like what you don't know. So, uh, you know. That would be one book. I'll tell you a great advice. Uh, come up, not just to us, to your friends. One of the things I did for years, particularly when I in your age, if I met somebody that I thought, hmm, they, they seem to know more than I do, um, which is most people. Um, what, what are the five books that changed your life? Write them down. You may not read all these books, but you'll create a list, a pretty good list in short order, and say, here's a uh, here's hundred books that have been recommended to me. Uh, we often hear people asking about movie recommendations. Uh, ask for book recommendations. And uh, it can be a wide range of subjects, but that's uh, a good way to go ask for, for what to read. All right, another question. That's all. Yeah, sure. I have a quick book recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. Quick book with, uh, another one about prayer that was really formative for me is by D.A. Carson. Uh, Praying with Paul, a call to spiritual reformation is the title. And, uh, that's an excellent book. In fact, I'm going to reread that. So, I reminded myself too. All right, Sean. Yeah, I have a question about tools and the bias that they may or may not 
carry with them. So we talked about smartphones a little bit yesterday, and it's a powerful tool. Um, but I also know people who are anti-smartphone because of the dangers that come with it. Um, so I guess part one, can there be biases with the tool itself? Um, like with TikTok, like should I try to promote my business on TikTok? Is that a useful tool or should it just be um, um, and I forgot part two. Okay. <laughs> Question about tools. I mean, take a broad swipe at that. Uh, I love tools and a woodworker. There's a big difference uh, between a handsaw and a power saw. And so not all tools are equal. Some of them will kill you uh, more quickly than others. You can be killed with a hammer. Uh, but uh, not quite as quick as you can with a table saw. Um, and so I'm um, being a little bit silly, but tools are, are all kinds of tools. Okay? You have tools in the kitchen, tools in the library, tools, tools are everywhere. They're, they're just part of what makes us uh, image bearers of God is we're creative and we figure out ways to do things and tools become a means. They're really a form of capital that enable us to do more to leverage things. And so the wheel is a tool. Um, and we've been able to do a lot more things with a wheel than we would have without a wheel. And we could multiply this example. But when we think about economics, tools are critical for any culture to advance and grow. And we get comforts out of that. We also get necessary things with big wells. We, uh, I, I watch some of my workers who just work with hand tools. A hand human beam is just amazing to me. And usually while I'm watching that, I think, now, if I had to do that, I would not be a woodworker. <laughs> um, I'm very thankful for power tools. But I'm going to use an example here to come up some of the modern things. Uh, so the smartphones, one we all go to, the we all have them, um, they're powerful. Um, right, Professor Wilson's making comment is, you know, uh, I have more in my hand than a medieval king had. I have servants at my left hand and my right hand, depending on which one I'm holding it in, that does things that are just phenomenal. You know, my grandparents' generation of the washing machine over the washboard. But this magnifies and multiplies you. And it's what you do with the tool, not what the tool does itself. It's neutral. It's, it's just a tool. It's just a thing. But these can be used for good, and they can be used for evil. And there's always the temptation to fall off again on the left or the right and say, oh, people do bad things with that tool. I'm not even using a backhoe. I saw a guy knock over, uh, crush a car in the with a backhoe, so I'm never using a backhoe. Well, get out your shovel. I <laughs> fell out here digging up the stuff. Uh, man with an axe and shovel. You can do it. Have at it. But I think that's I think that's a, a reactionary thing. We always have to realize the issues here, the issues can be inside of me and what I do with the tools that I have. So uh, anyway, we can go on and on about that. But that's the kind of initially. I don't know about TikTok, I'm not on it, I don't have a need for it. I don't know how that might be different than say Facebook or uh, any any one of I guess a zillion other things that are available business and what have you. So if somebody knows more about that specific platform, maybe it'll address the thing. Here's what you should do. With every tool, 
First thing you're tempted to do when I get a new tool is to skip those first two pages of fine print about safety. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know how to do this. I'll just plug it in and get to work. Um, those two pages on the front, before you get to how to use this, are important. And so if you don't know where the dangers are, are you more likely to commit those uh, uh, to fall into those dangers if you don't know where they are. So whatever it is in life, marriage, a job, a tool, read the safety instructions. Know where the pitfalls are before you start to use it. Maybe to pick up You don't have those first two pages for any technology that was developed in the last 25 years. Because nobody knows what happens if you give a child an iPhone at the age of 10 and then wait until they get to 60 years old. There's no control. Right? So we haven't worked out what the downsides are. So that's the overall thing, right? A couple of other resources. Ken Myers, All God's Children and Blue Sweat Shoes. Read that. Get them to read that book. Um, and he highlights a lot of many, many other things that um, tools are neutral in the sense that, well, they're good in the sense that they're creative. But no tool is transparent. That is to say, every tool leaves its mark on the user. Superficially, a shovel leaves its mark on you, blisters and broken toes if you miss. But every tool, reading on a Kindle, reading on a book, reading on a smartphone, it's not the same, is it? Right? So it's not just a tool in the sense that it doesn't do anything. That's the second thing. Then, then third, there's a whole background to that. Marshall McLuhan, Neil Postman, um, more recently Cal Newport. He's very good. Um, I'm going to the name of the book is when he, he highlights that when you're assessing whether to adopt a new technology, it's very tempting just to say, well, what are the, what are the benefits? Oh, this can allow me to do XYZ, keep up my friends, get phone calls, check my emails. And we don't know what the downsides are, so we just take it on the basis of the upsides. And he wants to say, well, what are the downsides? What are the upsides of it? Okay, then just one more comment, but it's in a broad theological context. Every technological development has entailed significant downsides and none of the downsides were known at the time. So just think, the invention of the syrup in about 3000 BC spectacularly only about 3000 BC spectacularly useful because it means that many more people can now ride horses and it also means you can shoot bows and arrows from horseback. Um, the invention of the production line is suddenly means that the guy who works in the car factory can buy the car he's making with four, month, four months' wages, which is about what a car costs today. Before production lines, every nobody can afford to buy a car because they're so expensive. But when the production line was invented, nobody realised that the craftsman who used to make cars now spends his days for eight or ten hours doing a repetitive 17 second action, screwing one widget into another widget and turning it around and putting it in a slot. 
No, nobody can realise at the time what the downside was. See, every single time you get a technological advancement, it brings downsides. Right? Because total depravity. So, what you need, you need maturity in order to navigate the downsides and, and, and glean the good. That's what Potson said right at the beginning. Absolutely, TikTok can be used for good. I have no idea what it is. <laughs> like um, methamphetamine. I'm sure there's a use for it. <laughs> but what happens is that the downsides make themselves spectacularly evident immediately and, we know, and accumulate in the space of like a decade or two, once every year, even like 20 years. And we lack the maturity to, to navigate that space. So you're asking the right question. And the answer is much harder than the So, with regard to smartphones, uh, Pastor Brad and I were having a conversation yesterday about the uh, is, is it necessarily a neutral thing? Because when you get a smartphone, a lot of decisions have already been made for you. There is a, there is the, the smartphone is leaning you in a direction, right? So the neutrality, um, we, we can overstate the neutrality of it. Uh, when you get a smartphone, it's going to direct you to certain kinds of behaviors and certain kinds of activities. It's made to do that. It, that that's the reason that the, the technology companies are developing these things are not because they want to improve the world. They are for-profit companies and they want to get you to use your devices in certain ways. And we know what those ways are, namely the way that we all use them, right? That, that's the way that it, it leads you. And so it's, it's changing the way you are a human being. Um, so that's the, that's the downside. It, well, an, an uh, amendment or amendment to the downside is it is a tool but the phone pre- make, turns you into a tool. It turns you into a tool for economic benefit. It, can, it, 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 it uh, determines behaviors for you, uh, things that you might not otherwise choose for yourself. Uh, you, you end up moving in those directions. Uh, they are, uh, the smartphones are absolutely a form of wealth. They, as, uh, uh, that's the way that Pastor Wilson described it. He says, you have 10,000 servants in your pocket. Yes and amen, and that's good, and, and we should make good use of that. But we should not operate under the assumption that, we, that because they have that good, that there is no downside. And we need to be aware that the downsides are built into the thing, and they might actually be invisible or transparent to you. You might not realize the long-term effects of those things. Now I'm going to go on just a 30-second rant on social media. <laughs> a one-second rant. Don't. <laughs> 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 Recommendations, if you haven't watched the documentaries, The Social Network, please do. It is powerful and, and helpful. And another book, a book that was really helpful to me, uh, we mentioned Neil Postman, many of you read Amusing Ourselves to Death, but read his uh, earlier book, Theop- uh, Technology, 
um, because it was written before the internet. And, and in that sense, from a philosophical standpoint, and being able to think through the whole issue of technology and tools in general, uh, reading, for me, reading something before the internet showed up, because the internet is just like this giant magnified version of all of those things. But again, every bit of technology, you know, uh, uh, Jeffrey mentioned the stroke, for example. I mean, the world is full of technology and tools. But in principle, understanding the things that we're talking about here, uh, uh, Neil Postman's Technopoly book is really, was really profound for me. Yes, you said the social network is the social dilemma. That's right. Okay. The social dilemma. Sorry. Okay. So the network is movie about Facebook. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm, I misplaced. The social dilemma. Um, so that's the one to watch, which evaluates how some of these systems are working, as we had said, to control you, to make you the tool. All right. One more question before we take a break. If you have one. Yes, ma'am. What was the author of that book? Um, Neil Postman. I don't even know if it's still in print. Oh, yeah, right, right. Yeah. 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 Yes. Uh, Wider subject. <laughs> All right. I was just wondering if you could talk about the importance of reading fictional stories to children. All right. Reading, I'm on, I know these guys have some input because they. They don't miss so fictional, reading fictional stories to children. Why is that important? I'll uh, say something that uh, my wife taught me. She said, hey, we were getting ready to go somewhere. And we're in the bedroom, we were closing, chatting, and chatting. Right? And I don't even remember the nature of the conversation. She said something, and then I, I called her a name from a, from a story. For being, so I already said the name. And she reminded me, and she goes, you know, isn't it, isn't it amazing how uh, the magic of fiction, that we can, we can, we can say, a, we can deliver a lecture by, by saying a character's name. Because in that name, right, it is so loaded with meaning, so loaded with truth uh, and experience that we can relate to. Though it's fiction, we still have, right, still, we, we still can relate to the world through that story. And so there's power in the imagination, but also the application of that imagination to the real world and our experiences in the world. Uh, very important, very formative, and obviously much of the Old Testament is narrative in nature, uh, also poetic, and those two aren't necessarily distinct uh, in the Old Testament uh, literature. Uh, but it is, it is quite formative, and it's an area in my life, I'm, I'm tending to be analytical, uh, personality that way, uh, system, systematic, that kind of thing. And so I have had to grow up as an adult in the fiction world, and my wife has really helped me with that. She loves children's literature, and she does such a wonderful job with our own children, and, and getting them involved, and um, it's become something that I've enjoyed. So yes, uh, thumbs up on that, and there is great value. Chesterton said that there are only two things that never get boring, people and stories. Um, uh, he, he also said the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. Uh, reading fiction to our children, um, 
enhances the imagination. The Bible is a story. Um, our lives are stories. Glory will be marked by the stories of our God. Our testimonies are of God and what He has done. So, uh, reading fiction to children is phenomenal. It also helps the reader. Uh, whatever happened to wonder in this world? And so we go, well, you're talking about He's an apple from a hag witch who's got a big old haunting wart on him. Um, yeah, that's right. Have you ever read something about a piece of fruit changing things in the world? I think I've read that somewhere before. Um, why is there ugliness and why is there being anyway? To tie this in with some of our talks, um, I would say this. Why isn't fiction a lie? Yes? Because it displays God's truth. Okay, so, in other words, if it's in context, then what if I know it's fiction? The problem comes in the world from people's fiction that try to turn it into an alternative world for reality and redefine reality. But as long as we're operating in the context of God's reality, uh, Chesterton's, uh, his, I think he has a chapter, I think it's in Heresy, his book on Fahrenheit. It might be orthodoxy. I don't know if I get those chapters in the book. Elfland, yeah, that's what it is. Where uh, uh, he talks about these, these stories where we create worlds. It's like God created a world. We use our imagination. We're imitating God in that. It's fun, it's instructive, it's poetic, it's, um, again, it, uh, I think that's, I actually even think, I'll probably get some groans here from some of the folks on the stage, uh, I think memes are a form of fiction and storytelling and poetry. <laughs> you can look at that, and with one little caption, it says volumes. And it, it captures a moment and an idea, and I think that's what fiction does. So you can say it's more from a name calling, and, and sometimes that can be good, but you know, if somebody uh, says you're a Grinch, um, everybody knows what that means because we've seen the story, heard the song, and we know that's not a compliment usually. So, yeah, is anything to add to this? Okay. Everyone had a question. I was just going to say, um, wouldn't Jesus' parables be considered a form of fiction? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so storytelling, taking bits of the world we live in and reconstructing them and putting them in a form that help us relate. Their illustrations are often a way of doing that. Again, I think all this is poetic knowledge. It's a form of poetry which takes language, thought, literature. Oh, another book I really recommend, I'm always recommending books, uh, Tom Wolfe's The Kingdom of Speech. I'm not necessarily recommending all of Tom Wolfe, but that book, the little book, it's really, uh, if you've read Everlasting Man by Chesterton, uh, he does kind of the same thing where he says the difference between man and animal is art. Uh, Wolfe says the difference between man and animal is language and the ability to create and to accumulate knowledge and to reshape it and reform it and come up with new things. And I think that I think they're both 
uh, on the central uh, important idea. And, and the Tomlin looks especially good because he trashes uh, Darwin. Um, and uh, all right, for that, I think we're going Was there one more? Evelyn had a question. Evelyn? Right here. For who? For Pastor Neil? <laughs> All right. Everybody look at Pastor Neil while she has So, my question is kind of just about like repentance and I guess looking for like encouragement for like forming a lifestyle of repentance. Like, most of us, if not all, attend churches that we get to like corporately confess our sins every week. Um, and you guys often talk about how that can change and mold and mature a community. And so I guess I'm looking for some encouragement about how that can affect like your individual life and how how it should change, like how you know our perspective of what God thinks of us when we're all right, so I'm going to invite him up here. The question essentially is how do we form a habit of repentance and as a, as a part of our uh, development as mature believers? Is that a fair way to yeah, summarize it? What do you have that you did not receive? A question the Apostle Paul asked. Repentance is a gift. Is a gift of grace. Um, I am not able to adequately repent. The Puritans refer to repentance as the vomit of the soul. Uh, that indicates that there's a sickness that needs to be shunned out. Um, anyway, repentance is a gift. And Paul or Timothy, he uh, prayed that some would escape the snare of the devil by being given the gift of repentance. And it's first time being too bad. Could be mistaken in that. Um, so measure yourself on you look at that one. Um, anyway, so repentance is a gift, and how does this shape us? Well, what do you have that you do not receive? Um, where'd you get your eye color? Where'd you get your parents? Where, where'd you get anything that you have right now? So every moment of every day is a gift. Time is a gift. We all fret over time. Time is a gift. Um, so, how does it shape me? When, when I go before the Lord, I realize I'm undone. When you go before the Lord, you realize you are undone. You're coming apart at the seams. You're leaking at your gaskets. That's the right place to be. And so what do we do? We go before the Lord and we ask for the gift of repentance. And it might be real uh, simple with you all and say, it's, it's a change of mind, it's a change of ways. Uh, repentance is a gift that recognizes that our God is doing the work of crafting us into the image of His beloved Son because He loves us that much. So why would I not want to receive the gift of repentance after the confession of sin. The confession of sin is to say the same thing that God says. I don't go before God simply say, no, oops, I'm sorry. I don't go to you and say, no, I'm sorry I did that. And you go to me and say, yeah, I'm sorry you did that too. Yeah, okay, we're in the same place. 
So we we say the same thing that God says. We're not able to do that unless God gives us the gift to see that. And then that is the aspect of repentance. So I, every day, um, as I receive the gift of repentance, it reminds me of who I am not and what our God is doing to shape me into who He wants me to be. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of love on that. of the creator of the world. 
one who created women and allowed the eternal spark of babies to be placed within the womb. And uh, I had something similar uh, to your question of man. Um, you said, how, how can you address something that you may have gone to? Well, because God has addressed it. And again, it throws me back to authority and someone outside of myself. So I'm happy to admit, Pastor Booth, that um, I, I can't face you. I, I can't help you out. I've seen John. Furthermore, I, I can address death. I've never died before. Um, that's something else. Um, I been beside people when they have died. I have closed eyelids upon my brother-in-law's. He died. I stood at my father's casket, my mother's casket. I didn't have for that, but I don't have any experience dying myself physically. I, 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 in a sense, I die daily with confession of sin. Um, so that's one thing I'd say. We, we often miss our opportunities to come alongside and serve people when we forget um, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, <coughs> which means God with us. We tend to think that what really matters is the stuff that's coming out of our mouth. When what truly matters is the presence of God alongside of someone. Oftentimes, I don't know what to say. And what does it mean? God with us. There, whether it's a mother screaming because her son was just diagnosed with cancer, um, I don't have the words for that. And I'm certainly not going to do um, Zophar, Bilzad, Eliphaz counsel. You know what? What they often need is presence. So, There's, a, there's a, a, a bad premise at work here that says that the only way that I can be of any service to you is if I enter into your suffering. That's bad. That's, that, that doesn't work. Um, I can suffer with you without having to enter into your suffering. So if you're a crack addict, the only way that I can help you is to become a crack addict. Crack addict. Well, that's, that's obviously a bad thing, right? But I, but I can suffer with you, and I will grieve with you, and I will uh, do uh, everything I can for you with the help of the Spirit and so forth, without having to enter into your suffering with you. That's a that, that's a bad play. And the person who is insisting that you enter into my suffering in order to help me probably doesn't really want to leave their suffering anyway. They just want to drag someone into it with them. Since a misery loves company, I want you to be here with me. And so. We want to help people, we want to minister, we want to uh, do all the things that we can for people, but that does, uh, dying to yourself does not mean doing that. Thanks, Joe. We can get an illustration of this on the issue of empathy, for example. Uh, a person in, in quicksand, and they want you to help them. But, but often, what you to do is get in quicksand with them, and now you can't help them. You have to keep one foot on the firm ground and you can lean out and try to give them a 
lot of false premises there, and I think Pastor Neal's comment about present from a friend whose son died, teenage son, had an aneurysm, died suddenly, I think he was 13 or 14. He said, my friends disappeared at the funeral. Didn't see them. And he'd come around. A lot of times people don't know what to say or do. And finally, his best friend showed up several months later, knocked at the door one night. And he said to him, I'm sorry I didn't come. I didn't know what to say. And my friend said to him, you didn't have to say anything, but you did need to come. So, presence. All right. Any questions? Um, what one, like if you could talk to like any theologian alive or dead and have like one conversation, who would you talk to and what would the conversation be about? <laughs> what theologian, if you could talk to anyone, dead or alive, um, who would you talk to and what would you ask them? I know Inspires me 
and teaches me uh, the most. I want to know the details and theological controversies and the philosophical issues. Those are underlying all these things. At the end of the day, that's what I would want. If I could get a dozen of those guys in a room for a long time and listen to them and learn, that's what I want. Yes, sir. So, Pastor Hatton, we're saying is that to love God looks like keeping his commandments and to disobey him shows our unbelief. I had always thought that to keep God's commandments was to fear God. So, my question is, is what is the difference between loving God and fearing God? Um, short answer is they're the same thing. Um, anybody want to expand on that? If you like to take it, it's why yeah. I We use the word fear. Look, there's a sense in which. A fear of God means to be afraid of him. He's going to crush you. I think I remember Al Martin, uh, the former Baptist pastor, saying that he was talking about the fear of God. He said that he would walk on a train track, a train was coming, and somebody yelled, Train, get out of the way, and you didn't. You know, either you were deaf and you had no perception and you didn't know what was about to happen, or if you were insane, because if you were sane, you'd be horrified and jump out of the way. Uh, so there's a sense in which the fear of God does have to do with, uh, like the demons, uh, they, 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 believe, uh, they believe in God and they tremble. But obviously most of what we have in us is respect for God. He's our Father. Uh, we fear Him in a sense. We, we care about what He thinks. We want His countenance to be toward us, not against us. And so that's how He loves uh, A wife loves her husband by respecting him or fearing him in that sense. So he's that word that way. So, anybody else? So, um, at, at Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20, on that whole circumstance, um, what's going on there is Yahweh is marrying himself to Israel. It's a marriage ceremony. Very much wedding language is happening there. And the people are terrified. And they say, whatever he says, we will do. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's also, he's also recounting the fact that he has just delivered them, you know, just, just a couple of months ago, he had delivered them from Egypt, uh, that he had loved them. So they're, they love him for his delivering power, but he obviously is not to be trifled with. He's, he's obviously... Um, is and possesses such power uh, that it brings us mere mortals to uh, to quake. Sometimes we see somebody doing something and they're selfish 
and they're self-centered, and they, uh, they, uh, but actually they're self-destructive. And it looks like self They're just doing what they want to do, but what they want to do will kill them or hurt them or damage their marriage or their children or whatever. And so, oftentimes I'll say this, I'm like, I'm not in a position to make you do anything. But sometimes, and I'll use this language, it depends on, okay, it depends on your relationship. You know, obviously there's a casual acquaintance, a close friend, a relative, a spouse, a child. Each of those bring with them a certain uh, gravitas, uh, weight, uh, the ability to speak to someone. But I might say something like, you know, I think I love you more than you love me right now. And so I'm going to tell you what God says. God is often, I'll tell you, God has often said things to me I didn't want to hear. But loving somebody is telling them what they need, not what they want. Sometimes those are the same thing. Oftentimes they're the same thing. And sometimes they're not. And I wouldn't be loving you if I let you keep doing this. Uh, so I would frame it in that way. But one last thing I'd say about this, uh, uh, one of those little things I've picked up over here, you know, those who know me have heard me say it. You gotta make deposits in people's lives on the good days, being friendly, showing an interest in them. If a person knows you really love them, when they're in a mess and you come and need to confront them, they'll listen. But if you just show up and have starts to burn, they, they're not gonna listen. They're not interested in you just putting out the fire. Uh, if you've shown up because you've been there a thousand times first, now you show up, they're ready to listen. So. Keep making deposits in people's lives by just loving them and showing an interest in them. In fact, they'll probably be coming to you when trouble shows up and wanting your advice. So, anybody add to that? Okay, another, another question? Yes, ma'am? So, uh, will the new heavens and the new earth be perfect? And will we have free will? And if we have free will, what's to stop us from repeating the Garden of Okay. In the new heavens and the new earth, uh, will we be perfect? And will we have free will? And what's to stop us from choosing to sin or to rebel? Alright. I believe Pastor Jeffrey has something to say about purified desires. 
you will then be free to act according to those desires and will only be good. So, yeah, I think that's probably. Is that enough? So, um, <coughs> resurrection is um, the, the physical climax of a new creation. So, you're a new creation already. Yeah. So, you're in Christ already. He's the new created one. You're in him as resurrected. But you're not in him physically. So, Romans 8 and Romans 7, and Romans 6, I have this kind of polarity between. Um, my body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is alive to righteousness and so on. Right? And so physical resurrection is the final step in a resurrection. We're already raised with Christ by faith in the spirit. We will be raised with Christ by sight in the body. And so that process is the, is the culmination. Um, so the Gnostics are right that the physical body is the problem. Oh, God. <laughs> but, but not because physical bodies are the problem permanently. That's where the losses are wrong. Um, look, look, at, look at Romans 8, um, 7 and 8, 6 and 7 and 8 in particular, and, and notice how many times it's the um, who will liberate me from this body of death? Yes, so, so that, that physical bodies are susceptible to desire, which is one of the problems with the second theories of mind, because they abstract the mind from the body. And all this stuff about artificial intelligence is not intelligent at all because it's not embodied mind. Um, so the resurrection is the final step in the resurrection of the whole person because it's the bodily transformation. And that's the process by which the desires are uh, purified. Now, the, the fact that the body is a problem does not mean that chopping bits off it will solve the problem. That's the thing. Um, which, is, which is why you know, Jesus Christ says, Okay, you are, you know, he's a preacher, he's exaggerating. Yeah, so, so that's the answer to the question, it's resurrection. And, and it's, it's like going back to the garden in the sense that it's, it's not inherent to a person to be sinful. It's not just going back, it's going forward as well. It's, we go to a city. Um, Adam would have been transformed and resurrected if he'd not sinned when we go into the place that he would have been. Mm-hmm. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> First John says when we see him, we show you just as he is. And I can only imagine that seeing, uh, being in the presence of Christ and glory, and again, sinless. Uh, I think of, of Romans eight and nine. But Romans nine, in particular, um, as God has demonstrated His mercy toward the vessels of mercy, He did so in order that He might make His glory known. And so, when we see clearly, how could we want anything else? You know, desires are suddenly uh, changed. There's a lot going on, but. Um, 
And so a lot of that is still mystery, too. So we're not going to answer all these questions in detail. But uh, I like to think of it this way, metaphorically, because I'm not sure how our cycle is going to be. Are we going to sleep? Are we going to get up? But if we were getting up every morning, and I said, you can do everything you want to do all day, every day, and never sin. That's the new heavens and the new earth. I think we'll still be maturing and expanding and growing and learning. That's my speculation. I think it's reasonable speculation. But in that sense, I'm not sure if anybody uses the word perfect. Sinless, but perhaps ever expanding. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's very hard to imagine what resurrected life would be like. So Jonathan Edwards, the guy who probably is a ruse too, if I didn't um, So he has a whole bunch of writings about heaven and his glory, the resurrection. And in one or two of them, he, he, said, he suggests that our senses will be um, refined and we'll be able to see a human face a thousand miles away. And we'll be able to hear um, such refined differences in texture of sound, you think, where is he getting that from? He's getting it from the Bible. So, what's the, think of a biblical image for resurrection. The, the resurrected body is to your body as an oak tree is to an acorn, First Corinthians 15. The seed that's planted in the ground is like the seed. How much more magnificent is the tree that grows on top? So, the kind of life that we will have kind of experience we will have is unimaginably more rich and textured and intensely emotionally felt and um, uh, Edward suggests that we may be able to read each other's minds and you think that's ridiculous you can read each other's minds now you can, think you you have a sister or yeah, and you know when you're sort of sitting watching a movie, and something happens, and you look at her, and you know what she's thinking. And what's happened is that your experiences have so aligned you that when you, uh, and your relationship so close that when you're in a similar situation, you you just know what the other person is thinking. That's a, a, a very faint shadow of how minds can communicate, and we normally need to use speech and things to, to transmit that. But Edward suggests, and why wouldn't this be the case, that, that if, with the amplification of our capacities in glory, that kind of experience will be far more normal and far more intense and detailed and textured. Um, so it's, it's very hard to put a ceiling on the character of the experience of the Perfect. Uh, 
Yes and no. Yes, we'll be perfect and that we'll be complete in Christ. No, if you need that we still have growth to do. Uh, get rid of the realm of speculation. John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, and he is whom you have sent. It's going to take eternity to get to know God. So if perfection means we know everything, give me a break. It, it certainly doesn't. We're going to continue to be growing. With regard to the protection, why would it not be a, uh, another Eden? I would say because of God's purpose. If, if he is, I'll just ask you the question. Do you think the last Adam, Jesus, were he in the garden, do you think there'd be a fall? Okay. We're all going to be in Christ. So, I guess my answer to you with regard to the perfection, yes and no, what do you mean by that? With regard to the uh, prevention of another fall, well, we're all going to be in Christ. And Christ is the last Adam, the faithful Adam, the one who... Against us. In our case, uh, 
I'm T Week S O I. So what was your name again, Grandma? <laughs>
So at that moment, at that moment of crisis, he remembered that he was a bondsman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord, his God, redeemed him, saved him, rescued him. So, one more question. Yes, sir. Do you have any passages or books that you feel are underrated, criminally underrated, struggling? Oh, well, we're here a
a suggestion, but the first, first I want to say, um, we generally have the Bible we're looking at. And the reason is, you, you know you can have those experiences where you've been looking at a, a little bit of the Bible, maybe in a sermon or a Bible study, and you, you've sort of dug deep into it, and you've found like, loads of riches and loads of detail and loads of really real insight there. You've had that experience. And, and the temptation is that you come to think of those as the currents in the current dome. Right, or the little nuggets of chocolate in a chocolate chip. Right. No, it's all chocolate. All the way through. And so, I would encourage people to read the Bible with the expectation of finding every single sentence to have little glittering diamonds sprinkled all over it. And we don't see it most of the time, but that's how we should approach Bible. And now I'll tell you like, my favourite verse in the whole Bible. What is it? <laughs> It's Judges chapter 3, verse 31. After him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox code. He also saved Israel. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, quite seriously, that's my favourite verse of life. It's massively underrated. <laughs> <laughs> Are you familiar with Seinfeld? Yes. Yeah. Do you know who Kramer is? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my son is Kramer. <laughs> I'm going somewhere with this. One day, my son says to me, Dude, <laughs> read, read the Song of Solomon to your wife. So <laughs> thank you. Not neglected, but they're, ne- they're neglected for what they're actually doing. Um, Genesis 1 and 2, I think, are profoundly important, but in our time, we're just using that as a polemic against evolution. And I think that we need to understand Genesis 1 and 2. We should read Genesis 1 and 2 every day. Uh, Psalm 1, we should read every day. Uh, John 1, uh, 1 through 3, we should read every day. Um, no, not Um, uh, and uh, Romans chapter 8 we should read that for what it's doing, not what we want it to do Um, so reading about a little bit differently uh, a lot of the well-worn paths still have treasures that we know nothing of and we should should rediscover those and that is criminal that we don't do it right I'll just close by agreeing with all of all you guys. Uh, the Bible is, I mean, every sentence, every word. Every time I study a book, I haven't really studied, or particularly when I teach or preach or begin to dig. Uh, it's always a delight. It's a, it's a treasure and surprise. Uh, maybe you know, a book that I've read many times and you just read through it and see all those things. And then to slow down and stop, and if you're looking, and thankfully, I'll say this, you know, we, we are really blessed to live when we do. I mentioned earlier Tom Wolf's book about the, the kingdom of speech. And one of the blessings of speech and what God has given us is the ability to accumulate knowledge. 
and books have been a tremendous blessing in the ability to store that knowledge and for us to be able to tap into it and benefit from those who have mined those obscure fields that we read past or overlook. And uh, so just urge you to maybe this year pick a book and a Bible. And so, you know, I've read that a number of times, but this year I'm going to dig deeper. And I think you've come away, uh, if you like me, in the moment. Yeah, this is my favorite book. Uh, I kind of like whatever my favorite whiskey is at the moment, or uh, those kinds of things. So, they're all neglected. Uh, uh, so, we can, we can all do it. All right. Uh,